Uh, our passage today is Acts 27, 21 through 44. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sell from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the, of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run around, run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. Uh, when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The boats uh, stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sarah. We have to eat to live. I think we kind of know that. Uh, this is kind of how I understand our bodies working. I did a little research if you're a medical doctor. You can correct me later if this is not the case. But nothing really happens to our bodies if we stop eating in the first six hours. So our bodies are energized by glucose. We're breaking down glucose. It feeds our red blood cells and our muscles. 25% of that energy always goes to our brains. After six hours of not eating, though, some of us get, you know this term, hangry. <laughs> it's because the glucose is gone, and so our body begins to break down fatty acids. But the problem is our brain can't be energized by fatty acids, so it goes to a backup, backup energy source through some molecules that doesn't fully fuel our brains. So after six hours of no eating, our brains are partially functioning. And then after 72 hours of not eating, it gets really bad 
because our brains run out of that backup, backup energy source and start feeding on our muscles. I don't know about you, but I need all the muscle I can get. <laughs> so our bodies are just like eating ourselves alive. And then our, our bone density goes down and our immune system suffers and our organs start to shut down and eventually we perish. We have to eat to live. Except for maybe this guy, Angus Barbarera. I heard about it. He, he went 382 days without food. He started at 456 pounds, ended up at 180. He subsisted on water and coffee, which I think I could live pretty long on coffee, and some tea and a little bit of sugar, a little bit of milk. But even eventually, Angus had to have a meal because you have to eat to live. Isn't it interesting? that God created us, and God could have created us any way that he wanted. We could have had little power packs or little plug-ins, but God created us to need to eat regularly. And I think to realize that when we sit at a table, it's a sacred space. It's a holy moment. There's literally a miracle happening. We're putting food in our bodies that our bodies break down and it runs our red blood cells and our muscles and our brains and we function and we live. We have to eat to live. And I think that's why intuitively for a very long time, even people who aren't theists or followers of Jesus say thanks before a meal or we call it grace. Grace, we understand that it's a gift. Something miraculous is happening right now. Even Hollywood understands some of my favorite scenes. Remember Meet the Parents? Do you remember that movie? where Ben Stiller's asked to give grace. It's just super, super awkward. Robert De Daenerys, Asterium. And Christmas Vacation with Aunt, Aunt Bettany gives the Pledge of Allegiance instead of that. And then maybe my favorite is Talladega Nights, Will Ferrell, and he prays to baby Jesus. He prefers baby Jesus to adult Jesus. So even Hollywood understands there's something miraculous happening at tables. There's a miracle happening when we eat. Luke also understands that. Luke understands that meals and table spaces, they're sacred, and there's a holy moment. And today we're going to look at Luke's uh, very last meal scene. I know we've been in Luke at Acts for a very long time. We have one more week before we transition to Holy Week stuff. I want to really encourage you to come next week. Our friend, Dr. Nijay Gupta, he's a New Testament scholar. He's going to come in and close our Luke-Acts series and tell us all the ways we've gotten stuff wrong, all the ways I've messed up, and he's going to correct things. And he's a fabulous communicator, and I, you won't want to miss it. So we're in our second to last, and we're going to look at Luke's last meal scene of many. We've been calling this series On Mission. And if you, this is your first time, Luke wrote a gospel, one of the four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. And then he wrote a follow-up, a sequel to the same guy, Theophilus, uh, fear of God, that's what that means, to people who fear God, that's who Luke is writing to. And we've been asking the question, how do we be a faithful church in America in 2023? What can we learn uh, from Luke? And we're going to learn a lot around a table this morning. So let me just give you context for the story you just heard. There was a lot there. There was a lot of verses. Sorry about that, Sarah. And you can get out your Bibles and have them open because I'll be referencing the different parts of the story. You can bring them up on your phones or look at them. I encourage that. Um, but we're in Acts 27. And so Paul, if you remember, there's three missionary journeys, and Paul's on his third one. We're getting near to the end of the book. Paul's been on trial. He, appear, he appeals to Caesar because he's a Roman citizen. So he's been taken by the centurion Julius. He's under his guard, other prisoners as well. Uh, they get on a ship, and they head off through the Mediterranean towards, uh, towards Rome. Uh, 
And so Paul's with Luke. Luke tells us, I'm now here. He's using that verbiage, like, I'm with Paul. I'm, I'm, I'm on the scene. There's probably other followers of Jesus with them. There's sailors. There's Jews and Gentiles. There's centurions and soldiers. Luke tells us, he's a historian, remember, there's 276 people on this boat. So they get one boat. They get another one. They're at the port of Crete, and it's winter, and Paul's a smart dude. And Paul's like, it's not safe to sail in winter. The Mediterranean uh, is a very dangerous place at any time, but especially in the winter. If you've been following these horrific migrant stories of migrants fleeing and trying to get to, they're cutting across the Mediterranean, and you hear these horrific stories of shipwrecks. It's very, very dangerous. And Paul knew that. Julius is like, no, I got to, you know, he's probably type A guys. We got to get there. We got to get there. Paul wasn't scared to get there. He wanted his day in court, even though he knew he'd probably lose his life, which he would. Uh, he's just telling them, like, it's not, it's not going to be safe. So they go, and sure enough, they're in this massive storm. So picture it. They're on a, they're on a boat. Massive storm. 276 people. 14 days they're getting pounded. I was complaining out front about the, the wintry mix we've been having every single day in Portland, which is really annoying. It's like that for 14 days. And they're not eating, not because they don't have food, because they're seasick, and they're heartsick, and they're scared. And Paul's like, hey, <laughs> Good news, I heard from an angel of the Lord, everybody's going to be okay. Don't worry. And, you know, maybe they believed him, maybe they didn't. They didn't know who Paul was. He's under guard. He could be a crazy guy. But then some sailors try to take off, and he's like, you better get back in the boat, because God told me everybody needs to stay together. And they did, and then they have some food, and then they realize as they're looking that they're getting closer and closer to shore, i.e. shipwreck, and so they ram the ship into a sandbar, the ship kind of comes apart. Everybody grabs a plank and heads towards shore. And the last line Luke tells us is, is everyone was saved. So I was reading this. And normally when I prepare messages, I, I read the passage, I pray, I read it again. I'm like, what's happening, Lord? Like, what am I excited about? What's hard to understand? I'll be honest. I read this one, and I'm like, yeah, shipwreck. It's good. It's kind of a cool story. I'm kind of bored by it. I don't know. How, how am I going to preach this? And I read it again, kind of the same thing. I grew up in church. You may have never heard this story. I've heard it a lot. I read it a lot. And then I read it one day, and I trust it was the Holy Spirit. And I was like, wait a second. Wait a second. I see what's happening here. And here's what I put forth to you that I think is the key of the story. That Since I've been young, I've read right past it and missed it. But understanding Luke... And understanding bread, we'll get to that, you'll see the power of what's about to happen at the very center of the story. It's not about a shipwreck at all. Here, let me read this passage. So if you want to read along with me, it's verses 30 through 30. I think this is the epicenter of the story. Just before dawn, Paul urged them to eat. For the last 14 days, you've been hangry. No, he doesn't say that. You have been in constant suspense and gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Paul's agreeing with us. You got to eat to live. Not one of you will lose a single hair from your head. After he said this, here it is. You ready? He took some bread and he gave thanks to God in front of them all. And then he broke it and he began to eat. And they were all encouraged and they ate some food themselves. And altogether, there was 276 of us on board of us, Luke said. I was there. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, this is a feast, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. That is what this passage is about. Picture it. It's kind of a crazy scene. They're on a ship, 276 people. They're getting pounded by a storm. 
There's no safe havens. They're wet. They're tired. They're sick. They're hangry. And then Paul's like, hey, let's have a party. <laughs> let's have a feast. Luke, get those, set those tables up. Let's get some flowers on there and flowers on there. And, you know, I don't know what it looked like exactly, but it's clearly a feast. And Paul is clearly the host. And then he gives this line that Luke, as we will see, uses three other times. So Luke is, if we know what's going on and we've read Luke and we understand, he's like, pay attention to this. And then he uses a term that they would use for the Lord's Supper. So Paul and Luke and the other followers of Jesus, they gather around the table, around the Lord's Supper to remember who is their life, to remember who is their sustenance, to reenact the story of the good news. But just like Jesus showed them again and again and again in Luke's gospel, everyone was invited to the table. Sailors, Gentiles, Jews, Greeks, prisoners, Romans, centurions, every, come on, everybody's invited. Because what Jesus offers and the life that we have in Jesus is for everyone. And in the midst of this shipwreck, Paul's like, listen, he is your only hope. He is your only hope. So I think that Luke is drawing our attention to the bread. I named this, uh, this survey today, it's all about the bread. And I think that was my breakthrough. I missed it. I'm trained to see these things, so I'm guessing a lot of us miss it, but I think the story is all about the bread. We use words in, in, in cultures that have a great import. What I mean is they have stuff behind them. So we will say a word and automatically think, boom, 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 boom. Or we see a symbol and they have stuff behind them. Sometimes if you're from another culture and you see this, it doesn't have the same thing. So we miss so much in God's word. And so I think this is an example of this. Let me give you a few examples just to kind of get your minds thinking this way. So we'll throw a symbol up. What do you think when you see that? Like Holy Spirit or peace? It's the international scene for peace. What do, we, what do you think when you see this? This is like uh, solidarity. We're in it together, revolution, that kind of deal. What do you think? Oh, I hurt you. I love you. Okay, what do you think? Uh, this is, I don't know, like new life maybe? transformation, hope. How about, uh, this? Oh, oh, yeah, romantic love, right? Our hearts begin to flutter a little bit. Uh, this we, like back in the, they didn't use, the Christians didn't use this symbol for four centuries because it was a symbol of shame. But now we see it, it's not a symbol of shame, it's hope, it's life, it's self-sacrifice, all these kind of things. What do you see in this? This is like God's team <laughs> or America's team or victory. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, how about this one? Oh, that's the last. Well, so let's carry that over to this. What do we see when we see this? A lot of you are like, I'm on a keto diet. I don't eat that, <laughs> like, right? I'm gluten-free. That's, you know, that's kind of what we think. So we miss it. We miss it. And for those of you who are like gluten-free, I don't do bread, you're gonna have to get over that for this message. I'm just telling you. So think about like donuts, because who doesn't like a donut? If you don't like a donut, I don't know what to do with you, to be honest. I don't know how I'm going to make disciples out of you at all. So, um, so I want to take you on a, uh, I'm going to do two things. We're going to kind of teach you how to do theology a little bit. And I, I think to understand this story, we got to understand the story of bread in Scripture. So I'm going to pretty quickly go through the story of bread in Scripture. My, my, uh, my Hebrew scholar friend, Tim, he uses this term hyperlinks. 
So he said, everywhere in scripture, if you know what's going on, there's a hyperlink, meaning you press it and it takes you somewhere else. So in bread, when the original readers want to see in bread, it was a hyperlink to this incredible story that shoots all the way through scripture. So we're going to go through that quickly, and then we're going to really also quickly recap the importance of tables in Luke's gospel. And when we place those two things together, I promise you, this story pops. Are you guys ready for it? The story of bread. It doesn't sound very exciting, but it will be. So it starts with Passover, which we have, we have good friends that are Jewish. It, this is the high week for Jewish people, the Passover, and that celebrated the story of God setting free his people from bondage in Egypt. The story is they had to get out so fast, the bread didn't have time to rise. So when Jewish people gather for the Passover feast, and Jesus did this, we'll get to that, they're reenacting the story. So at the center of a Passover meal is unleavened bread to remind them of that. And so here's the passage from Exodus. This is a day you're to commemorate for generations come and celebrate as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread uh, made without yeast. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for generations to come. So the bread eaten at Passover, and bread's at the very center of the Passover meal to remind them that's what kept them alive at the beginning of their sojourn into the wilderness. Bread was their sustenance. Bread was their life. And there was millions of them. So I, I, I came across this quote. I'm reading this book by these two Yale scholars and uh, it's called The Hunger for Home, and it's really great. And I came across this quote, no joke, because I was prepping this message the other day. I was like, this is perfect. They say this, we misunderstand human life if we reduce it to just bread, but we also misunderstand bread if we reduce it to just bread. And they're talking from a biblical standpoint. Bread, whether dramatically as manna from heaven or more of human hands, proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. A loaf of bread is the most ordinary and most miraculous of things. And I'll just say this, and I'll probably keep repeating this slide, bread is almost always more than bread. When you see it in scripture, it's all, there's more going on than that. So you see that at Passover, bread's always more than bread, it's their sustenance, they gathered, they remember, and then we, they get in the desert, they run out of their unleavened bread, they eat it. So now there's millions of people wandering around for 40 years in the desert, God's people that he set free, and they're like, how, they're like, how are we to eat? And God's like, I'll give you bread from the sky, which we call manna. This is Exodus again. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? <laughs> they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it's the bread the Lord has given you to eat. Manna, the word manna literally means what is it? And Moses is like, it's bread falling from the sky. So miraculously, God would feed them daily bread, only enough for the day. When certain of them tried to hoard it, it rotted. And so they'd give them two days supply right before the Sabbath because they didn't work on the Sabbath. But every day, manna, bread, would fall from the sky. I have a theory that manna is what we call Captain Crunch, because it's, <laughs> I love Captain Crunch. I don't know what to tell you about it. So they, we just named it Captain Crunch. So they're holding their cereal bowls up every morning, you know, just like, this is awesome stuff. You can subsist on it. So, but this is the idea. God's replacing the unleavened bread, the center of the Passover feast, with bread that's falling from the sky. Bread's always more than bread. Then Jesus starts his ministry, and he goes for 40 days into the wilderness to approximate the 40 years in the, wild, in the, in the wilderness of, of God's people. And then at the end, he's famished is the Greek word that's used. 
He's famished, and Satan, the evil one, shows up to try to tempt him. And the first temptation the evil one uses is? Bread. Okay, this is like me giving you a quiz and also the answer. Like every time, if you just say bread this morning, it's probably gonna be right. So yes, bread. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. At the end of them, he was hungry or famished. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. Jesus knew the scriptures like the back of his hand. And that verse references the manna, but also said, you didn't just live on that, you did, but you also lived on the word of God. That's what really sustained you. So bread and the word of God, bread and the life of God are linked up here. And Jesus is like, devil, you can't, you can't scare me with that. Yes, I'm famished. I'll get food soon enough. But my ultimate food comes from God. And that's what I need to survive. Bread is always more than bread. Then Jesus, there's this weird story. He's walking with the disciples. The Pharisees had all these crazy religious rules about not doing stuff on the Sabbath. And they're walking through a grain field. And, uh, and they get a little courageous. And they start pulling off grain and having a little grain snack, a little bread snack. And the Pharisees, I always picture the Pharisees as like off in the corner like binoculars. They're just like looking for them to mess up. And they're autumn. They're like, ah, we caught you, you know, eating great of the Sabbath. And then Jesus gives this kind of weird show. We don't have time to break it down, but I'll explain it a little bit. He says, Jesus answered them, have you ever read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and took the consecrated bread, that was bread set aside for the priest. He ate what was lawful for only the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Jesus then said to them, this is powerful. He says, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I think for one, this is a story of David's getting hungry. He goes in, he's gonna, he's gonna starve to death, so they just take some of this bread. And Jesus is like, it was okay. Chill, chill religious people, chill, relax. I think that's one thing he's saying to them. But secondly, and this is profound, he's like, like my disciples can eat anything they want. Do you understand who I am? Do you understand who I am? He's like, I'm not only the bread in the story, I'm the one who provides the bread. In John's gospel, he literally says, I am the bread of life. Oh, bread's always more than bread. Feeding the 5,000, now he really shows it. Luke 9, he's teaching, there's probably 15,000 people there. And it's been a long time. Jesus, like me, speaks long and goes on and on. <laughs> and, uh, and his disciples are like, hey, the, there's no supermarkets around here. Like, how are we going to feed all these people? And Jesus is like, you feed them. I love his leadership style. You figure it out. You feed them. They're like, Jesus, all we have are some fish and five loaves. He's like, I can work with that. I can work with that. So he prays over them. You probably heard the story, even if you're not a church person. And, and brrr, bread just everywhere, so much so that there's leftover bread. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, now watch what happens here. These are the exact words Paul uses in our story. He gave thanks, and he broke them, and he gave them to the disciples to distribute. Then they ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls that were left over. Bread is always more than bread. Jesus is not just reenacting Moses. He's not being Moses. His disciples were Moses. In the manna story, Jesus is God. Jesus is like, no, I'm the bread and I'm giving you the bread. Oh. And then we come to what we, we typically call the last supper. I, I've started calling it the first supper. Because I think it's the first time Jesus comes into the 
Passover meal and reorients it around himself, making it a kingdom feast. So in the first supper, they're together. They're in the upper room. And uh, my wife, when we were in Israel, took this picture of the upper room. Isn't that awesome? And so uh, they're in the upper room, and there's more. There, there's women there. There's, there's a whole group of disciples there. And they're around the table, and they're celebrating the Passover meal, where bread is at the center of it. And then watch what Jesus does. Jesus says, I am that bread. And he took the bread and he gave thanks, same line that Paul uses, and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Bread's always more than bread. And then you think Luke's dud, he's not dud. And then you have kind of the final story in Luke's gospel. Uh, You have these two disciples. Jesus is maybe risen from the grave. And this is the historical stuff of what happened. It was chaos in the city of Jerusalem. And there was all kind of like, the grave's empty. We know that for sure, the grave was empty. Where is he? Did it get stolen? What's happening? And these two disciples, they were both scared and hopeful and excited and and anxious, and they don't understand it. And they're walking on the road to Emmaus. It was one of the primary roads out of Jerusalem. They're going back home, and then all of a sudden, Jesus comes up beside them, and they don't recognize him. Jesus starts to explain to them how he fits into the story. And it says their hearts were burning and coming alive. They understood it. They still didn't recognize him until they sat down with him at a table and he broke the what? Oh, you guys are sharp. Bread. And later, right? Later, they ran back. Ran when he disappeared because he broke the bread and, and he uses the same line again that Paul uses. He took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he gave it to him. At that moment, they recognized him and they ran back to the disciples and they said, Jesus is alive and we didn't recognize him. This is their literal words until he broke the bread. Bread is always more than bread. So we have that context. That's the hyperlink that we missed, that I missed that they would have immediately thought of at that meal. And then we have this backdrop of Luke's gospel. And this will be a review for some of you that were with us for that series, but one of the dominant themes in Luke's gospel, if not the most dominant, is tables. Luke knew that tables were sacred space and that meals were holy moments where miracles occurred. And in the Greco-Roman world, they had these things called symposiums. That word just means joint drink. And they were the epicenter of everything in the first century Greco-Roman world. They would gather maybe every night with these big lavish banquets. They would eat first, and then they drink a lot. And at these banquets, they would talk about philosophy, and they'd talk about religion, and they'd gossip and do all these things. It was also a place that was on full display who was who, who got invited, who didn't, who sat in the places of honor, and who didn't. And the Jewish people took this model and used it. They used it in a different way, but their banquets were very much who's in and who's out. Now you have that in your mind, and here comes Jesus. And Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God that is, you remember, Luke, the great reversal. So Luke has many table scenes, but Luke has six banquet scenes, and he's very clear in articulating this is a symposium. And Jesus enters them. He's always invited as a guest, and by the end, he's always the host. Interesting. And he's always inviting people who don't belong. And it drives them nuts, except for the people who don't belong. They're rejoicing. And as we talked about in Luke's gospel, Jesus used tables to give a foretaste of the kingdom of God. 
You want to see what the kingdom of God like? Watch what happens at this table tonight with me as the host. You'll know. This is a portal of the kingdom of God. And his disciples are watching, and they carried that into the practices of the early church. I think a slide's going to come up. If you think I'm making all this up, there's not only the six scenes, but those are, those are all the, the table scenes in Luke's gospel. It's not a minor theme. Uh, there's 60 references to food and eating in Luke's gospel. That's 2.5 per chapter. And uh, I like to think of Jesus in the gospel of Luke as like Brad Pitt in all the Ocean's Eleven movies. He's always eating. You notice that? He's always eating. Go check it out. Go watch him. He's always eating. And what he's doing is entering in these spaces, and he's transforming the very foundations of the Roman Empire. And he's like, not on my watch. That is not my kingdom. Those of you who have never had a seat at the table, have one now because of me. So now we know. This is kind of how you do, this is kind of how you understand the Bible. And so we have these two contexts. We have the context of the hyperlink of bread, the story of bread, and we have this context of the the, the sacred spaces of meals and the holy moments and the miracles of meal, and you put those together and you read our story, and oh my goodness, now we see it pops. Now you see in the middle of this monstrous storm where people are fearing for their lives, this group of courageous followers of Jesus say, hey, let's have a feast. Only crazy followers of Jesus could do that because it's okay because we know who our God is, and we're all going to be okay. And you know what? We're going to kind of do our thing here and reenact our story, because that's really important to us. You're all invited, because what Jesus did for us, he can do for you. Come and feast and eat until you're hungry no more. That's what's going on, and you're like, oh my goodness, that's truly transformative. So what? That's what we always get to these points of the message. That's what, if you're new to New Hope, that's what we say. So what? Right? I can stand up and tell you Greek words in the Bible, and it can be boring or entertaining or whatever, but so what? We're, we're trying to be apprentices of Jesus here at New Hope. What does this story mean for us? And I, always, I, I take that very personally for myself. I'm an apprentice on the journey as well with you, broken just like all of you are, saved by grace. I think when I thought of this story, I think uh, I mean, any of you could have written this sermon, like it's not rocket science, the so what, I thought, Jesus is our bread of life. Jesus is our bread of life. We see this theme throughout the scriptures that God is our life. We are created for God to be our life and for Jesus to be our life, and yet the best of us substitute that for other things. And they're usually good things. They're usually things like a career or family or romance or uh, some vacation we want to go on or a new house or possessions. Or, none of these things are inherently evil or bad. That's the sneaky thing about them. They're always good things that if Jesus is our life and at the center, they become beautiful in proper perspective. But they're not built to be our life. And if we put them at the center of life, we will shrivel up as humans. We're not meant to live that way. Jesus is our bread of life. For uh, Lent, uh, some of you are new to the church calendar. So we have our regular Western calendar, and then we have the church calendar, which is our real calendar. And we're in a season called Lent, which for followers of Jesus, we're preparing ourselves for Holy Week. So some of you are new to that, and that's okay. Followers of Jesus all over the world, millions and millions of them for Lent, choose to fast something. And so when we hear fast, we're like, that sounds really punitive, like I did something wrong, and I'm having something taken from me. 
And that's not what it is. It's meant to be life-giving. The word fast, um, it comes from an Anglo-Saxon root. It means firm or fortified. I think of Jesus' story at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. What are you building your life on? Is it the rock, i.e. me, or other stuff, i.e. sand? And when the storm comes, how is that going to go? So fasting allows us to test that a little bit. Done properly, we come to a season like Lent, and apprentices of Jesus say, hey, I think I'm going to fast for these 40 days, something that's good, but I think it might be becoming too important to me. It could be maybe replacing Jesus, and I don't want that. And so I'm going to choose, by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, to set that aside for a season so I can see who my life really is, because I want it to be Jesus. The verbal form of fast means to hold firmly to. So in the best understood way, fasting allows us ultimately to hold on to Jesus for dear life. And that's what we're trying to practice. I've tried it as well as you. It goes well most days, other days not. Um, I had some friends that uh, pretty much lost everything in a, in a recent tragedy of fire. And I was texting with, with, with my friend, and, and uh, he said this profound thing. And he's like, you know, John, it, it took losing almost everything to realize I had everything I needed. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Let me write that down. That's how it's supposed to work. It, it, Paul in Athens in Acts earlier, he said, in him, in Jesus, we live and we move and we have our very being. King David would say, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. So here's the practice, followers of Jesus. When you sit down to a meal today, unless you're you're fasting food today, you will sit down probably very quickly to a meal. See it as a sacred space. See it as a holy moment. See it for the miracle it is. Be grateful that it is a gift and also a portal that we recognize that Jesus is our bread of life. Yes, we'll eat and be satisfied, but ultimately, we're only satisfied in him. And if you've kind of set aside the practice of saying grace, and some of us grew up in homes where it gets legalistic and perfunctory and it loses its power, I understand, maybe this message will reinvigorate that practice. So you recognize that, and whoever you're joining, I have meals all the time with non-Christians. I'm like, hey, can we pray? I've never had one say, nope, that offends me. I'm like, it just doesn't. So we, we, we say, if you don't know how to pray a prayer over, say the Lord's Prayer. Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each our daily, what? Bread. Wow. Forgive us our sins, as we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. I told you, it's all about the bread. Secondly and finally, so what? Jesus is our bread of life. I think we see in this story Paul illustrating as as he's showing us what a true witness looks like. Bread is meant to be shared. We should share our bread. The, The early Christians in Corinth, that's one of the church sites, and this is a couple decades in after Jesus' resurrection, they were already losing their way which gives me great confidence for myself when I lose my way every day. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 comes in, and they're having their versions of the Christian symposium and banquet. And with the Lord's table at the center of the Lord's Supper, 
but they've lost their way and that they're taking the poor people now and putting them out in kind of the living room area. The rich people are in the dining room. The rich people are eating the best food and then having the workers that come later, having the scraps that are left over. And Paul is angry. And he said, this is a matter of life and death. And then he says this. He says, do you not know that your tables are the Lord's table? How about that, followers of Jesus? When we sit down at our tables with our, with our food, it's not our table. It's the Lord's table. It's meant to be a foretaste of the kingdom of God. What does that mean for the people that we share our food with and we share our tables with and we share our bread with? Back in Luke 4, Jesus, he's launching his ministry and he has rabbinic status. He has rabbinic authority. So he's able to walk into a synagogue and walk right up on the stage like this and read scripture. So he unfurls it, and this is very purposeful, and he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. And at the end of it, he said, today in your midst, this is fulfilled in me. And Luke only gives us a little snippet, and the little snippet is from Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58, but undoubtedly Jesus read all of that. And so watch this. Look what happens. This is from Isaiah 58. We don't have it in Luke 4, but undoubtedly Jesus on that day launching his ministry read these words, and he said, it's being fulfilled today in me. Is this not the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your what? Your bread with the hungry. And does that mean like literally share our bread with the hungry? Yes. There's 811 million people in the world that go to bed hungry each night, 42 million in America. Followers of Jesus should absolutely be part of that. But there's also a spiritual sense of sharing our bread that I think that we don't often do. We're scared to do it. There's things that hold us up. I have people on a regular basis ask me, are you an evangelical? <laughs> and so I always, at this day and age, I always ask what their definition is before I answer. And I'm like, well, if you mean kind of the quasi-political party where most of the people involved don't look anything like Jesus, no, I'm not part of that. Do you mean the historical word? The, the word that comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. Are you asking me, do I want to be and aspire to be a person of the good news? Yes. And in that sense, in that ancient, historic, biblical sense, I'd argue all followers of Jesus should be evangelicals or people of the good news, sharing the bread. What reasonable, sane, decent person doesn't share good news? I don't know, though, right? If you have like a good movie or a good book or a good new restaurant, who doesn't share that with people they love? So like we should share our bread if we believe Jesus is the bread of life and he is our hope. And that is the epicenter of our faith in joy and in hope and in expectation of what God can do. We want to share that with people we love. Bread is always more than bread. As we get ready to come to our tables here, I just want to say that sometimes when we, I'm always asking you to enter the story. Enter the story. Sometimes it's hard. It's a weird story. Like, I don't know about that. But this one's easy because we're all about shipwrecked, I think. <laughs> you don't think you are? That's, I don't know what to do with that. I think if you're honest, we're all like right there, almost shipwrecked, all having that sense of feeling. Like, we don't need to... Like, how would that feel? <laughs> so we can enter this story, and we can enter the story, and we know the fear, and we know the, the anxiety they must have been feeling that day. 
And as followers of Jesus, we can also sit down at the feast in the midst of that storm and remember Jesus is our life. But some of you today, uh, just because of burdens you've carried, wounds, sometimes that have come from church and church people, and I'm so grieved about that. Some of you are here today with fear and trembling, and you've never felt like you had a seat at the table. And, and whatever it is, you, if I ask you in a personal conversation, I'd be like, why? And you'd be like, well, because I don't feel blank. I don't know what your blank would be, but I'm here to tell you today, it doesn't matter. I'm not excusing your wounds. I'm just saying nothing can keep you from the feast of God. God's grace is always bigger. It always wins the day. And it may take you a while to trust me on that, but I promise you, I promise you the invitation on that ship that was going down that day, the invitation Jesus gave again and again and again is good for all of us. All of us are offered a seat at God's table. And today maybe is the first time you've heard that and it's clicked and you understand that. Maybe it's the first time you're done trying to put something other than Jesus at the center of your life and you move it to the side and you put Jesus there and you choose to hold on to Jesus for dear life. I pray, I pray that that would be the case. And you can celebrate by coming and joining us at the table. And here at New Hope, um, I don't want anyone to ever feel awkward about, what do I do now? Uh, we, we come to the table and there's host in just a second. I'll read a prayer and you'll come up. And there's host who will just invite you up and they'll walk you through it. They're gonna pray a prayer over you this morning. And those of you in the balcony will have to come down to the lower lands and bless us with your presence to take part because we wanna do it together. Um, but what we're doing here, and Jesus told us to do this. He says, do this to remember me. And that word remember in the Greek and even in the, the Jewish context never meant mere mental memory. It included that, but it meant embodying something and reenacting something. So I always like to think of, the, of, of coming to the table and we do it every Sunday. This is the most important thing we do every Sunday, no doubt. That to our words, we're reenacting we're entering the story, this is my story now. Jesus is my bread of life. We're sharing it together and we're rehearsing for the great feast that will one day come. And if we're hopeless this morning, you could live in hope of that, that one day our King Jesus, our bread of life, will make everything that's ever been wrong right again. And we rehearse for that day. So let me read this prayer over you. Um, it comes from a, a prayer book I have called Every Moment Holy. I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but some days I don't know how to pray. I'm your pastor. I don't really have words for it. And I love these books because when I'm stymied in my prayer life, I turn to these beautiful prayers and I can walk into them and live into them. And uh, this is one of my favorite prayer books. And this prayer is perfect for this message today as we prepare our hearts for communion table. Let me read this over you. Let us stretch our artistry, O Lord, using every means at our disposal, to craft a meal that might awaken in the souls of those who share it, a yearning hunger, which might only finally be satisfied by the bread of life and the wine of God at the time of the Lord's remaking. Let us make this day a meal that would point to that day, a meal to remind of the beauty and the love and the promise undergirding all of creation. Let us make a meal to remind our pilgrim guest that life will not always be so burdened that their days of exile will end, that they will feast at last joyfully in the city of their hope, at the table of their God King, at the wedding feast of their Prince, at the dawning of a golden age, untouched by mortal sorrows. And all God's people said, amen.